seated. Open your Bible to Genesis 3. We're going to continue our studies tonight of uh, great chapters of the Bible. We're going to be working our way systematically through chapters that are of special importance uh, in our understanding of God and who He is and instruction to us. And we come to a very practical chapter tonight. All the Bible's chapters are practical. But this one is perhaps one of the most crucial chapters in the whole Bible because it explains why life is like it is on planet Earth. It explains how God could create things perfectly and wonderfully and in goodness and with all good concern and care for humanity. And yet, we find that our world has gone pear-shaped. It's gone out of condition. It isn't what it ought to be. And we all know that. And this is a chapter that explains that to us. So I want to read the entire chapter tonight. And then I want to talk to you about the fall. Last week we talked about the creation, and tonight we want to talk about the fall of man. It's not talking about the autumn of the year. It's talking about how man fell into sin. The Word of the Lord says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also ate, gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, 
and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the, God, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for its beauty and power. We thank you for the solemnity and sadness of the text that we've just read, but also for the burst of grace that's contained here too. Help us to see both of these things tonight. You speak to us. Hide me behind you. Let, let your word speak beyond the mere voice of a man, and we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love music. And uh, as a kid, uh, you know, growing up in the 60s and uh, late 60s, early 70s, I had a radio stuck in my ear all the time. And one of my, I mean, literally, you remember when you had transistor radios and you had the little thing that went in one, the earbud that went in one ear, you know, primitive technology, but, but that, was, that was what we used at the time. One of my favorite groups was a group called Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Some of you may remember them. They were kind of folky, you know, but they were kind of rocky at the same time, beautiful harmonies. And uh, they were at Woodstock. And we mentioned Woodstock a few weeks ago, you know, that, that uh, music and art festival in 1969, August of 69, in upstate New York. And uh, they uh, wrote a song about Woodstock uh, after the event was over with, and it was on an album they published. And there's a line in there that is stuck in my mind. There are a lot of lines in there that are stuck in my mind. It's one of the problems with growing up in the 60s. But uh, one of the lines in there, they, they say, uh, it says, we are stardust, we are golden. We're caught in a devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Now, here is a secular group in the 60s, make no pretense at being religious in any way, and yet the story that we've read tonight is so well known in our culture, so widely understood, that even pop musicians can write it into their text. And everybody in the audience will understand what's being said. This is perhaps one of the most famous stories among humanity that anyone has ever uh, shared. It is this story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And it is, it is interesting what Crosby, Stills, Nash said, wasn't it? You hear that last line? We're caught in the devil's bargain and we have to get ourselves back to the garden. You see, there's a hunger inside humanity, isn't there? Humanity does not know what it's looking for. We don't know, people on planet Earth, we have this hunger on the inside of us. We have this longing on the inside of us. We don't even understand what it is that we're missing. We search for it everywhere. We try to fill it with things that are, uh, appeal to our appetites, 
things that are beautiful for our eyes to behold, things that make us wise. We're always looking for something to fill the emptiness on the inside of us with. And what we're trying to do in a certain sense is we're just convinced that if we can just get ourselves back to the garden, that we can fix it all, that it'll be okay, that the thing we're hungry for we'll find. We've got to get ourselves back to the garden, but you can't get yourself back to the garden. And that's the whole story. The whole story of the Bible is going to be how only God can undo the mess that we have made on planet earth. And this is the story in Genesis 3. We're trying to get ourselves back to the garden. You can hear the pathos in the word where there's something we instinctively feel that we've got to undo the mess. Is there any hope? And yes, there is. Because even in this chapter, where we find out who caused the mess and why the world is a mess, we have a burst of grace that tells us that there's hope and that there is a way for restoration to come. We're going to see all of that tonight, Lord willing. The big idea that we're dealing with tonight is simply that sin has tainted the creation, but God has given us hope of redemption and of restoration. Sin has tainted the creation, ruined the creation in many ways, marred the creation, and yet God has promised that there's hope of redemption and that there's hope, a certainty of restoration. We're going to look at this tonight by concentrating our thoughts around three different uh, objects or subjects. First of all, we're going to look at temptation in verses 1 through 5. And then in verses 6 through 11, we're going to look at the fall. And then in verses 14 through 24, we want to see judgment and mercy. Judgment and mercy. And so that's our trip tonight. Let's begin in verses 1 through 5 with temptation. Uh, We meet in these verses for the first time the enemy of our souls, Satan. Uh, The Bible makes it very clear that the serpent was not simply a snake, that there's something more going on here than merely uh, an animal. Uh, Animals, for example, don't talk. Uh, Well, maybe Balaam's donkey, you know, that kind of thing. But we do find this occasionally in Scripture. But what we're given to understand here is that this is the enemy of our souls. This is Satan. And in order to find out who he is, we have to go all the way over to the book of Ezekiel. We're not going to go there tonight to find out about him. But what we find is that he's one of those spiritual beings. Remember that when we talked about the creation last week, we talked about the fact that God was doing certain things before he created the material universe. And one of the things that our Bibles give us to understand that he had done before he created the physical universe was to create the universe, the other half of the universe, the side of the universe with spirit beings, angels, cherubim, seraphim, the spirit beings that are real, just as real as anything we know on the material side of the universe, and yet unseen by us. And unseen by us because we have been exiled from the garden. I want to suggest to you that the Garden of Eden was the place where humanity in our original perfect condition could experience both sides of God's universe at the same time. We not only are conscious of the material side of the universe at that point, but we could be conscious of the spiritual side of the universe. So it's not surprising for us to open our Bible 
and find that there is the serpent there who is a spiritual being. He is the devil. He is the enemy of our souls. And yet he is, he is clothed in a, a, a figure that we would understand from our own side of the universe. You know, it's very interesting, and this is, this is just probably gratuitous information for you, but it's very interesting that our, phys- uh, our friends who are physicists are always discovering more and more about how God made his universe, you know. Did you know that our physicist friends now tell us that there has to be more than the material side of the universe? Isn't that a wonderful discovery? You know, they could open their Bible and save themselves a lot of time and a lot of mathematics. But they tell us that there has to be something more than the material side of the universe. In fact, in fact they tell us that creation has to be super symmetrical. They tell us that there has to be another side of the universe that we cannot sense with our physical senses that actually is the permanent side and it's the heavier side. It's symmetrical with this side, but it's super symmetrical in the sense that it never passes away. If they just opened their Bibles and read their Bibles, they would have known this. But let's be kind and let's thank them for, for affirming and helping us and encouraging us by affirming what the Bible has always said to be true. Listen, if you're in a confused moment in time and you want to know where truth is, it's just like we talked about in Psalm 119. This is where the truth is. And sooner or later, we have nothing to fear from science. Science, if it does its job properly, and it will if people do it with integrity, is always going to end up confirming what God has already told us in the book. Because God has spoken to us truly. We need not fear science as believers in Jesus Christ. That was for free. I didn't intend to do that, but there it is. You've got, you've got something extra tonight for coming along. So we find the devil. We find this one who is the enemy of our souls. And he steps into the picture and he begins to do something that has never happened before in the history of the world. He presents Eve with a temptation. He tempts her to sin. We want to look at this matter of temptation in our first two sections tonight. We want to be able to understand what it is and how it works. And so look in verse 1 where we find the devil shooting a fiery dart. The devil's going to shoot a fiery dart. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He just shoots this fiery dart of doubt. And you know, the devil is still doing the same old thing every day today. This is his weapon. What does he do? He comes to us and he shoots these fiery darts of doubt. That phrase, fiery dart, comes out of Ephesians chapter 6. You will know that. You're a well-taught congregation. You understand that the apostle Paul talks about that that the weapon that the devil uses is a lie. He comes along and he tells a lie. That's his, that's his thing. So he questions God's truthfulness. He begins the conversation with Eve by saying, did God really say that? And just in the phrasing of the thing, you can tell what he's doing, can't you? Did God, <laughs> wait a minute, let me put it another way. Did, <laughs> did God really say that? Can you hear it? It, this, is, this is the devil doing what he, what he does every day over and over and over again. 
he causes, he tries to cause us to doubt that God has been true and that God has spoken truly. Well, he denies God's goodness and love. Eve answers the question. Eve says, well, yeah, this is what God really said. We may eat of all of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And now watch what the serpent does. Watch his next move. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He flat out calls God a liar. This is what, this, what, what he does. And then listen to what he does. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. He says, God's holding out on you. You could be like God. God is wonderful. God is tremendous. He comes and talks to you in the, e- in the cool of the evening. You enjoy God's presence. Wouldn't it be wonderful, Eve, if you could be God? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? God's holding out on you, you know. The reason he doesn't want you to eat that is because you can be God. And you see, it's the same old lie that he's been using ever since the creation he's still using today. Do you know what, God is, what, what Satan is doing today to humanity? We're living in the Western civilization. Ever since the 60s, Western civilization has divorced itself from the idea of absolute truth, of certain things being true. You know, we now live in a postmodern culture. And in a postmodern culture, everybody gets to make up their own truth. You know, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. We all have become the arbiter of truth. Has it ever dawned on you that that is a declaration that you are God? If all of us can decide what's true for ourselves then we all have to be sitting in the seat of God. And of course, society is in chaos. Because when we all agree that I'm the one who defines truth, then society is going to descend into chaos, isn't it? If, if, If I get to decide what is true, and you get to decide what is true, and you get to decide what is true... How in the world are we ever going to be able to navigate life on planet Earth? But this is where we are. Do you know what that is? It's just the same old lie from the garden. It's the same old lie that Satan's been using successfully to deceive humanity ever since Eve bit the apple. It's the same thing over and over again. See, Satan's only got one tool to use, but he uses it really well. The tool that Satan used uses is a lie. Lies are the hallmark of those who belong to the devil. And it starts right here in the garden. And so this is what he does. He does this. He denies God's goodness and love. He denies the truth of what God has said. Now, why does Satan do this? Well, the answer isn't hidden. Our Bibles tell us. He does this because he hates God and he hates everything that God loves. And this includes men and women who are made in the image of God, but it extends beyond mere humanity. The devil hates nature. Did you know that? The devil hates nature. Why is there so much uh, 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 destruction in nature in our world today? Why is it that the Amazon is being wiped out being cut down 
by people who care nothing about the health of the planet. Why is it that we spill oil into the Gulf of Mexico and it runs for weeks and weeks and weeks and kills all kinds of of fish? Why is it that we don't care if we're dumping carbon into the atmosphere? Do you know why? It's because Satan hates nature and all of those things are expressions of sin. Satan hates nature and the reason he hates nature is because God loves nature nature. Do you know God loves the world he made? God loves the world he made. God loves, his eye is on the sparrow. He knows when a sparrow falls to the ground. He knows the hairs on your head, which he doesn't know much on mine, but there you go. Listen, God loves nature, and Satan hates nature, And through the hands of sinful men, he will continue to destroy nature because it's a little way of him digging back at God before God pulls the curtain down. Satan hates humanity, he hates nature, and he hates the unfallen angels. And there's war in heaven that's going on. Why is it happening? Because Satan hates and wants to torment and to destroy whatever God loves. The point that we have here is that our enemy is working through lies to try to deceive us every day. Since we have an open enemy in Satan, we should not be ignorant of his schemes. If the devil is out there using this weapon over and over again, it will help us immensely to understand how it is he's attacking us. He attacks us with lies. He questions God's truthfulness. He questions God's love. Forewarned is forearmed, says an old proverb that's well worth paying attention to. If you know where danger lurks, you can take appropriate action to avoid its sting. You know, there are certain curves in the road that I drive to to the church every day that are pretty tricky. Some of them are 90 degrees. And uh, you have to anticipate the danger. Uh, The first time you drive those roads, or if you drive those roads in the dark, and you don't know them, and you're going too fast, you could be in for some real trouble. But when you know what's ahead of you, and you know where the curves are, then you can take an appropriate action. You can slow down. You can drive safely. It's a piece of cake, unless you've never driven the route before. Well, Adam and Eve had never driven the route before. They've never seen anything like temptation. Satan comes along and says, what about this? And Eve said, yeah, sounds good to me. Easily, the scripture warns us ahead of time about Satan's methods. Our parents got taken in. We'll talk about that a little farther down. But the thing for us to concentrate on here is we know where the curves are. We know that he's going to shoot these fiery darts at us that are lies and doubts. He's going to be constantly trying to stir those up. The scripture warns us ahead of time about Satan's methods. His fiery doubts of dart about God's love and truthfulness are custom made for each one of us. Satan hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. He has a custom made temptation just for you. Did you know that? He can't know our thoughts 
but he's a past master at analyzing character types and personalities and fears and passions. And this makes him a very skilled opponent when it comes to finding just the right temptation to present to any one of us. Now, don't help him out by being ignorant of his ways. When doubts of God's goodness and love and truthfulness are presented to your mind, watch your step. The serpent is trying to trip you up. How can you resist him? Well, the scripture tells us clearly in Ephesians 6, 14 through 18. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let me give you the secret to fighting off the attacks of the devil. It's not really a secret if we've read our Bibles, is it? Saturating your mind ahead of time with God's word, praying it with the Spirit's help, and committing yourself to trust and obey what God has said. No matter what temptation you're facing, this is how temptation is defeated. But what happens if we don't know that? Well, let's read on a little farther. Because in verses 6 through 13, we find the fall. What we find here is Adam and Eve falling into Satan's trap. Now, you know, it's easy to fool the innocent, isn't it? You know, we have little kids, you know. It's a lot of fun. We have a lot of fun with little kids, don't we? Because they're, they're so gullible. They're so easy to take advantage of, you know. We can, we can do these things that appear to be wonderful and and it's just, it's just chicanery, you know. Guess which hand the, 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 the candy is in kind of a thing, you know, and all of this. We, it's easy to fool, fool the innocent. Think about it. Adam and Eve, you know, we talk about people who are innocent being born yesterday. Adam and Eve. I mean, they literally were born yesterday, right? So when Satan comes along with his temptation... This is new ground, man. They've never seen anything like this. They have no experience to keep them from being gullible in the extreme. Nevertheless, that did not keep them from being responsible and culpable for disobeying God. They were innocent in a certain sense of not having seen this, but they knew enough of God to know that they should trust him and that they should believe what he said. And so, even though there are first parents, Adam and Eve, were in this condition of gullibility because of a lack of experience and never seeing sin before or anything like that, nevertheless, they're held fully accountable for their choice that they made to disobey God's command. Now, they fell into that temptation because uh, something happens when we encounter uh, words. Did you know this? Of course you know this. It happens to us all the time. Words have an effect on us. It isn't just that words have an intellectual effect on us. Something happens in our heart sometimes when certain things uh, appear to us, when when somebody says something. We feel something down here, don't we? I mean, there are times when 
uh, take, for example, the loss of a, of a loved one, you know. You feel it very deeply. It isn't just an intellectual thing that happens to you. You feel it. Something goes on down here, right, when words come along. It works the other way, too. Uh, you know, if you're hoping to marry that, uh, that uh, lady that's sitting back there in the back with a mask on, uh, you know, and, uh, and you, you say to her, will you marry me? And she says, yes, I will. Something happens in here, doesn't it? See, words have an effect on us. There's, there's a supernatural effect of words. Words are supernatural things. I mean, they really are. And not only that, but certain things that we see will cause an effect. Uh, you see, I, you know, I remember standing beside uh, uh, one of the waterfalls at uh, Iguazu. Uh, tremendous, tremendous. And, and just being just stunned by the glory of God. Looking at this waterfall, I'm looking at this thing visually, but something is happening down here. You see, words have that effect on us. And so when Satan shoots those darts, the human heart can be played upon like a musical instrument. And what happened was that when Satan shot that dart, Eve said, wow, that feels pretty good. I wonder, you know, I wonder if that, won't, if that wouldn't be good. And, and she's deceived by this thing. It says that she looked at the fruit and she said, wow, that that's, looks like it'll be good to eat. It's an appetite, you know. I'm kind of hungry. I could, I could eat that. That'd be all right. Then she said, wow, look how pretty it is. It's beautiful, glorious. I, I think I'd kind of like that. And then there's this whole thing about it'll make me wise. So, oh, I think that'd be really good. What's going on with Eve? It's not an intellectual thing. It's something that's going on down in the core of her being that says, I want that. I want that. And you see, Eve was susceptible to that, even though at this time she had not fallen into sin. You and I are doubly susceptible to that because we have a sin nature. Because of what happened in the garden, that urge, that intensity of longing that we will feel these illicit desires will naturally rise up in, in, in us when those fiery darts are shot at us. And there'll be that temptation for the thing that we know is wrong, but we feel on the inside. Well, maybe, maybe you know. A.W. Tozer helps us out. The point that we're feeling, that we're, that we're talking about here is simply that temptation works on the basis of these, Satan creating these desires through the world, appealing to the flesh, coming through the lie of the devil, and if we're not careful and don't know what he's doing and don't realize what he's doing, we may very well fall into this and be susceptible to it. We think, well, that's a, that thing's not so bad. No. But since we know how temptation works, we should be on our guard against falling into it. A.W. Tozer said, the heart of man is like a musical instrument that may be played upon by the Spirit of God, an evil spirit, or the spirit of the man himself. And that's news you can use. This is because we seldom realize this reality, even among Bible-believing Christians. Because of our fallen nature, our heart, the spiritual sensory organ that guides us, that rebukes us, that convicts us and affirms us, that instrument can be played upon by the Spirit of God or by our enemy, the serpent. 
When Satan brings temptation into our minds, visually, verbally, through reading, or by seemingly random thoughts out of nowhere, our hearts react, and we know that we're being tempted. Untaught believers often assume that they themselves are the source of the temptation. You see, somebody who's new in the faith who doesn't realize what's going on, doesn't realize how they're made and how things work, will credit to themselves that temptation and will say, wow, I must be really rotten if I still want that. What a blessing to learn that such temptations are the work of the enemy and not we ourselves. There's something we desperately need to know. Your feelings are not the real you. If you put your faith in Christ, he has made you a new creation, forgiven all your sins, shared his resurrection life with you, and sealed you with his spirit. God allows temptation to come to his children to test and mature our faith. And when we learn the secret of calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, of trusting his spirit to win the victory, we're on the road to Christian maturity. Believer, stock the shelves of your mind with God's truth and quickly reject temptation in Jesus' name whenever it pays you a visit. Don't let the harp of your heart be touched by the fiery fingers of the evil one. James tells us, submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, the last movement of the passage is in verses 14 through 24, where we're given a view of judgment, but also of mercy. The entrance of sin into the creation brought judgment from God. This is a natural result of our rebellion against God. Paul speaks about this in Romans 8. He talks about the law of sin and death. The natural reaction, the natural thing that occurs when sin happens is death always inevitably follows it. It's, it's a law. It's like a natural law. It's a law in the sense of that gravity is, is a natural law. It, a natural law is something that happens every time. And uh, when an apple, uh, when the gravity works on an apple in a tree and the stem is getting weaker because it's that time when the fruit has come to its perfection of ripeness and it's ready to fall to the ground, the apple will fall to the ground every single time because gravity always does what it does. Sin works in exactly the same way. Wherever there's sin, there is going to be a natural consequence. And the natural consequence is death. This is the law of sin and death. And so it's not surprising that God would have to confront Adam and Eve in the garden and bring judgment on them for what they have done, for disobeying, for violating his law. Even though they were schnookered by the devil, they were still responsible because they actually knew better. So God steps into the garden, and I love this. I want you to see not only the judgment, but you've, we've got to see the mercy that's here. We've got to see the grace that's here. Because you see, this is such a dark picture for us unless we understand that in the midst of judgment, there's also the mercy and grace. And the first place we find this mercy and grace is God coming into the garden after they've eaten the apple. It's just the fact that God even shows up 
God shows up after they've done this. And, and I love this. They're hiding out. They're in the bushes. And you get the picture. God comes into the garden, and he walks over to the bush that they're crouching down behind. And they're down there cowering behind the bush, and God looks straight through the bush and says, Adam, where are you? It wasn't that God didn't know where Adam was. God knew where Adam was. Adam didn't know where Adam was. Well, where he was, was ashamed for the first time. He felt shame in the presence of his creator. And the creator comes to him and looks into the bush and says, come out here, I've got something to say to you. Come out here, I've got something to say to you. And what he has to say to him is, now you're under judgment because the law of sin and death works every time. Now you're under judgment. And here's what I'm going to do. The serpent is going to go on his belly. I'm going to judge nature. Nature is going to be corrupted because of your sin. You and your wife are going to fight against each other for the rest of, of your lives. She's going to have to be subject to you. She's going to have pain in childbirth. You're going to sweat to make your food And when the whole story is over with, I'm going to return you to the dust because you came from dust and I'm going to make you dust again. But then there comes a burst of grace. Look what he says in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Life went on. God did not call the curtain down. God said, life is going to go on. Why is life going to go on? Because God's got a plan. He had a plan for redemption. He had a plan for restoration. You say, pastor, where do you see that? Well, look at the next verse. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God made a sacrifice of an innocent animal so that he could cover their self-caused nakedness. And that's the whole story of the Bible. The whole story of the Bible is right here in Genesis 3. God created. We have sinned. We all sinned in Adam. Every one of us are just like Adam and Eve. We've done the same thing that they've done over and over again. And God spares us the execution of sentence, so that he can work redemption and eventual restoration. This is the whole story of the Bible right here in this one chapter. And the rest of the Bible is going to be about that story. This is what the rest of our Bible is going to be about. How is God going to work out redemption? How is that sacrifice of those animals that he made those, took those skins from to cover their nakedness? How is that going to play out in space and time and history? We've read the rest of the book, so we know the answer, but it's echoed right here. God said, this is how I'm going to do it. Why did he do that? Because in judgment, God has mercy. Because in judgment, God announces mercy. See, this is who God is. This is who God is. The doctrinal point is, since we know we're sinners and deserve only death, the wonder of God's mercy should shine all the brighter in our sight. You know, when a jewelry store wants to display a diamond in a way that'll show off all of its wonders, 
the gem is placed under a bright light and set against a background of black velvet. The blackness of the cloth removes all light from the surrounding of the stone. And the brightness of the light above it makes the diamond's beauty and sparkle unmistakable to the eye of the beholder. And this is exactly what God has done in Genesis 3. The blackness of our sin is contrasted sharply with the beauty of God's mercy so that we can see the brightness of God's revelation of himself in the creation story. Remember, it's a God story. It's showing us who God is. And God says, this is who I am. I'm the merciful judge. You look into your judge's face and you find a savior there. See, this is the wonder of Christianity. This is the wonder of who God is. The blackness of our sins contrasts sharply with the beauty of God's mercy so that we can see the brightness of God's revelation of himself. In Genesis 1, God said, let there be light. And that light was God's revelation of himself to men and angels. Without the blackness of sin in chapter 3, the glory of God's brightness could never become obvious to our wondering eyes. You can't have a light without a dark to stick it in. There has to be the fall so that we can see the brightness of God's glory, the wonder of his grace. You know, there's a hymn, The Love of God, that celebrates this truth in glorious poetry. You know the hymn, don't you? The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, bowed down with care, God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. You know, there's the diamond placed against the velvet for our inspection. The application it calls for is clear. Its celebration is expressed in the chorus of that hymn. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. You see, the thing that redeems the blackness, the darkness of the fall, is the mercy and grace of God that is put into action from that very moment. Maybe Crosby, Stills, and Nash were onto something. All of our lives, we've been longing to get ourselves back to the garden. Well, when we get back to the garden, what do we find there? Well, we find that our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. You see, that's the, that's the wonder of it. His mercy is more. We all got it coming. We all deserve it. But he says, wait a while. I've got a redeemer, and I'm going to promise you restoration. And this is the glory of the gospel and the glory of the Bible. So his mercy is more. Have you been gripped by the truth about your sin and hopelessness? Be just as gripped by the wonder of his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that your mercy really is more. Adam and Eve just did what we would have done if we'd have been there. We wouldn't have done anything. We were there. We were there in Adam and Eve. We were there in Adam. We all sinned in Adam. That, that sin is my sin. It's your sin. It's not your sin, God, but our sin. Lord, that sin destroyed us and took us to the ground and gave us no hope except 
that you are a God who is rich in mercy and who delights to be merciful. And you had a plan since before the foundation of the world for our rescue and for our redemption and for our restoration and for us to be put back into your presence, to be able to walk with you again in the cool of the day, to be able to put our eyes on you again and see you for who you really are in all of your glory and splendor. You did not give up on us. You came to save us. And I thank you for it. Thank you for the encouragement of your word. Help us to rejoice in the fact that you are a a merciful judge. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.